1: When we think of the final months of the Second World War in Europe, we think of the vast waves of infantry moving across the continent, the daring British and American paratroop missions, and the elated scenes of final liberation. Yet, what we don't hear about is Operation Amherst. This was the codename given to the airborne landings of some 702 French paratroopers into occupied Holland, They were part of the British Special Air Service, the SAS, and in this daring mission, which was one of the last major airborne operations of the Second World War in Europe, they heralded the liberation of parts of Holland, discovered holding camps for victims of the Holocaust, and paved the way for advancing Canadian forces. I'm your host James Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and to take us through this period of history as we reach its anniversary here in April, I'm joined by Joel Stopple, one of Europe's most well-known battlefield guides and the founder of battlefieldtours.nu. As Joel explains, when it comes to this operation, what could go wrong did go wrong, but it didn't stop the troops from fulfilling their mission. Hi Joel, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today?
2: Yeah, great. Thank you for having me here in this uh, podcast.
1: Not a problem at all. I think you are our first Battlefield tour guide and you have one hell of a reputation. So you've got to tell us, you've got to take us through. What are your most popular sites that you go to?
2: Yeah, I visited a lot of sites, especially at the last years when I was involved in a project with a camera team, a video team to record all the historical places all over Europe, from Monte Casino to Normandy to the UK. So that was an amazing project. Speak to a lot of guides, but also historians and uh, veterans. But I think the, uh, where I'm now living, and I'm living in the city of Groningen, it's the northern part of the Netherlands. It's One big city, that was one big urban battlefield during the end days of the Second World War, April 1945. Uh, The Canadian Second Infantry Division was involved in heavy house-to-house fighting, clearing each house for house. And I think that's, yeah, it's, it's a battlefield that's nearby my house, so I can walk outside and you see still the scars of the battle everywhere in the houses and, and a lot of people are still talking about it today. So I think that's an, an amazing battlefield. I visited last October also uh, Monte Casino and I was standing on the, the Polish Memorial looking uh, to the Abbey, the all-seeing eye of this uh, this battlefield. And I, I think this is also an amazing place to guide, especially customers that are interested in, in Italian campaign.
1: Amazing. Well, I'm creating a whole checklist here of things that I'm going to want to visit with you, Joel. Are there any that particularly stand out for you?
2: Yeah, I had a, a couple of veterans, especially Canadian veterans, because I'm specialised in the Canadian liberation of the Netherlands, and they liberated a the large part of the Netherlands. And there was a fierce battle in the in the northern part of the province where I'm living. And I was guiding veterans from uh, in, in 2015 for the commemorations for the liberation of the Netherlands. And I met one of the Canadian veterans of the Cape Breton Highlanders, who was involved in the fighting in the last days of the war. The regiment was involved in fighting between 29th of April 1945 and the 2nd of May. Can you imagine the last days of the war? And I talked with him, and I saw his cap badge, and I told him, I asked him. Cape Britain Highlanders, you were fighting in, in Del Salle. And he's looking at me amazed and he asked me, how do you know it? I told him, yeah, I see your cabets, Cape Britain Highlanders, so I know your your regiment was involved in heavy fighting. And he started to cry and he told me we were involved in fierce fighting in, in Sicily, Italy. And then we were moved from January 1945 to the Netherlands. And at the end days of the war, especially around the harbor of Del Cale, I lost six till eight men that survived all the fighting in Italy. So can you imagine? These guys were involved in, in the war in 1943 uh, in Italy, uh, Sicily. And then at the end of the war, they moved the whole regiment to the Netherlands and they lost a lot of men during the last days of the war. It made a big impression on me. And I said, okay, it's important to keep the stories alive, and especially for uh, this kind of veterans. And in 2009, I visited the commemorations in Normandy and there was the commemoration of Omar Beach. I saw an old man walking uh, on the beach, looking at the sun. And I was thinking, okay, I need to go to him. Maybe he has a story to tell. So I, um, the commemoration was still ongoing. And uh, I asked him, are you a veteran? And he told me, yeah, I'm an American veteran. And I uh, landed here at the first wave. I have attended so many commemorations. I want to be alone on this beach because I saw so many good men being killed here on this beach. He told me, come, come. I'm going to sit down in, at the beach in the sand over here uh, together with you and I will tell st- uh, my story. And he told me the story that he got out of the boat and there was a lot of firing and people killing explosions on the beach, but he lost his weapon and he was behind one of the obstacles on the beach for six hours. Some people killed, some people lost their arms, legs. It was really terrible. And then at the end, the obstacles were cleared by the engineers and he can go forward, get his weapon. And then a mortar exploded nearby him. And he was seriously wounded. And then he, they brought him in one of the hospital ships and there was still a German sniper in one of the bunkers that hit him in a knee. And when he arrived in, in the UK, um, they never sent him back because he was so uh, wounded and terrible pain in his knees. But he told me each day, each morning that I'm awake. I told my wife, I'm happy. That I survived and that I um, together with you and to make this day a great day. And uh, that's also one of the things I always remember. These guys survived a lot of things. So it's important to keep their memories alive, I think.
1: Well, Joel, thank you so much for keeping these stories alive. And I could sit here and listen to these all day, as I'm sure our listeners could as well. But you and I had a chat and we were discussing about which specific part of this history you wanted to focus on. And the first thing you said was, let's drill down into Operation Amherst. And this is something that I know absolutely nothing about. So I'm really keen to learn. Tell us, what was Operation Amherst? Which part of Second World War history are you taking us back to?
2: Yeah, I'm taking you back to April 1945 when the Special Air Service was deployed, French Special Air Service, at the end of the war. It was also one of the last airborne operations during the Second World War. And a lot of people don't know nothing about it because it, it mostly the period between Operation Market Garden and the Battle of Arnhem and the end of the Second World War, especially in the Netherlands, is largely overlooked because yeah, people are focusing on... Market Garden, liberation on the 5th of May in the Netherlands, and that was it. But we have in between tough battles still, and still at the end days of the war. But before I'm starting about Operation Amherst, it's really important to set the scene and tell a little bit about the French Special Air Service Regiments and when we these founders, because that's really important for the context about Operation Amherst.
1: Yeah, it's also something that I know very little about as well as this deployment of French SAS. So so take us into that.
2: Yeah. Now, in October 1940, General Charles de Gaulle decided to set up a French paratrooper unit. And uh, this unit was given the name, the first company, the Infanterie de l'Air, as I speak well in French. And this unit was given the name, the first company. And at the beginning of 1941, the first soldiers of this unit jumped over France as special agents. And in July 1941, a large part of the company was sent to the Middle East to participate in the fighting against the German-Africa Corps. So they were really involved already in the beginning of the war. And in February of that year, the first company, over around 50 men, was inducted in Egypt into the Special Air Service of David Stirling, and that was the founder of the Special Air Service. And this unit was called the French Squadron. So uh, from February 1942 to April 1943, the French squadron participated in all special air service missions in Tunisia, in the province of Tripoli and in Crete. Uh, the survivors of these operations uh, returned to Great Britain in April 1943, so you see a long history already. There in the UK, the 2nd and 3rd regiment, the Chasseurs, the Parasitists, so the RCP, were established here, so the uh, two regiments. And these two regiments consisted mainly of veterans from Libya, supporters of the goal from North Africa, French refugees and volunteers from all over the world. So you can say that uh, it was soldiers from all over the world. After an intensive training in Scotland, the regiments were ready for deployment in the spring of 1944, and at the end of May they were transferred to a transit camp at Fairford Airport, that was in southern England, And shortly after this, 430 French paratroopers were dropped in Brittany during D-Day in the night of the 5th or 6th of June 1944. And uh, their commitment lasted two months. And the aim was to prevent the Germans from sending reinforcements to Normandy, of course, uh, together with the resistance. But uh, their mission succeeded but at a high cost, but because 77 paratroopers were killed and 192 were wounded or missing. And in uh, 1944, December, is also unknown fact, the French were deployed during the Battle of the Bulge. In, uh, and in February, the regiments were transferred to England, where they were brought back to strength with volunteers for the Marquis, the French resistance, and in the spring of 1945, plans were made to deploy the special air service into the Netherlands. And that was by the newly appointed general, James Michael Calvert, also known as Matt. <laughs> Michael Calvert is Matt. Yeah, And then we look at the situation in March and April 1945. And we go back to the 6th of June, 1944, uh, when the campaign to free fortress uh, Europe from the West finally began. When Allies forces came ashore in Normandy, in France of course, in, uh, on D-Day. The Liberating Armies would soon advance north and east, but the Netherlands, with its challenging uh, terrain of canals, dikes and floodlands, will prove to be a very difficult battleground. And I talk with a lot of Canadian veterans, also British, and they always say to me, always the bloody canals in the Netherlands, because when the Germans blow up a bridge, you need to have bailing material, and it also slowed down the advance. So it's it was a terrible situation in the Netherlands. In mid-September 1944, the Allies launched Operation Market Garden, that was a daring land- and airborne attack behind enemy lines, and that was in the eastern part of the Netherlands. One of the goals was to bring the war to a rapid end by cutting half the German positions in Northwest Europe. But as all we know, the German resistance was tough, and the bold offensive failed, and they captured the bridge at Nijmegen, and the bridge at Arnhem was a bridge too far. And that was apparent that the conflict would drag on till in the winter of 1944-1945. Now, to maintain pressure on the German forces, the Allies needed a reliable way to keep the flow of vital supplies moving to the front lines of Northwest Europe. And that means that we need to have a large port, because all the supplies were still coming from Aramans in Normandy. And we captured the British at Nijmegen, so you can imagine how long the supply lines were in 1944. Now, the major Belgian port of the city of Antwerp was kept almost intact in early September 1944, but there was still a complicated factor, because Antwerp is located some 80 miles from the North Sea and is accessible only by the Scheldt River, a waterway that was still in German hands with bunkers, heavy artillery, so much of this portion of the Scheldt runs through the Netherlands and the 1st Canadian Army, led the way in fierce combat to clear the Germans from its shores in the fall of 1944. All we know is there is an episode of this battle, also on Netflix, The Forgotten Battle, here you can see it, uh, it's more focused on the Battle of the Scheldt, also an unknown chapter of the Allied operations in the Netherlands. Now The Allied troops would succeed in opening the port of Antwerp to Allied shipping, a key step in the liberation of uh, Northwest Europe. But it did come with a great cost. More than 6,000 Canadian soldiers were killed during this operation, wounded or taken prisoner in this uh, bitter cold campaign because it was October 1944, November 1944. A lot of rain, uh, terrible conditions for the Canadians to fight over there. Yeah, and um, after this, what happens? Because we have the Scheldt Estuary, we have the harbor, but then what is happening on the, in the rest of the Netherlands? With the realization that the conflict will stretch into 1945, the Canadian soldiers took up positions on the Nijmegen salient, that was in the eastern part of the Netherlands, near the German border. Because after Market Garden, we captured that area, it was also still front area for the, the Allies. Now the Allies would make careful plans for the campaign to end the war in Europe in a new year, but the delay would have serious problems for the Dutch people. But because we already endured more than four years of brutal enemy occupation and there was a lot of hunger in the western part of the Netherlands. It's also called the terrible hunger winter because a lot of people uh, died due to starvation in the western part of the Netherlands. Now, after three months of helping hold the line in the Netherlands, in Nijmegen, the Nijmegen salient, in February 1945 the 1st Canadian Army took part in a fierce Allied offensive, again through muddy and flooded the ground to drive the Germans from the Nijmegen Front and back across the Rhine River. Again, terrible conditions, and a lot of Canadians were killed during this fierce operation. Now, in early April 1945, the First Canadian Army began to clear the Germans from the northeast portions of the Netherlands and often aided information provided by the Dutch resistance fighters. Canadian troops advanced really quick, but sometimes you have tough resistance in small towns, small villages, and it was still a challenging and stressful campaign for the troops because it's almost at the end of the war. And a lot of Canadians thinking, okay, this is the end of the war. and don't want to be killed on the last days of the war. So there was also a lot of stress.
1: And there was that palpable feeling at that time, was there, Joel, that they knew that victory was close?
2: Yeah, of course. And this uncertainty took also a goal also and sick a goal toll on the soldiers in the final weeks. because what I already mentioned, no one wanted to lose their lives when victory seemed close at hand because everybody seeing the Germans are retreating and the war is almost over. But still April is a terrible month and one of the Canadian officers also stated it was a terrible month but still a lot of Canadians were killed in the last days of the war and, and and it was a terrible toll for the liberation of the Netherlands. Now, And then we are looking at Operation Amherst, because in early April 1945 the 21st Army Group began discussing the possibility of engaging in operations with the Special Air Service Brigade, and that was under the command, what I already mentioned, Brigadier James Calvert. And the topic was to use airborne troops in the Netherlands in cooperation with the 2nd Canadian Army, and Calvert explained the theory of dropping airborne troops in groups about 15 paras, Spread over the wide area and ensuring that their actions were as large and effective as possible, and to prevent any regrouping by the German retreating army back to the northern part. Now, the Canadian staff and Calvert identified an area in the northeast part of the Netherlands where paratrooper landings could successfully occur, and that is uh, on 4 April 1945, an agreement was reached on the appropriate drop zones. And there was also a plan drafted to, that included around 900 men and 18 jeeps. And the jeeps were dropped behind enemy lines and then they bring the jeeps forward. Because when you are dropping special air service troops, you need to be mobile, quick reaction force, so you need the special command jeeps. Now The 2nd Canadian Army in April 1945 consisted of 3 divisions operating in the northern-east part of the Netherlands and the main purpose was to advance to Emden and Wilhelmshaven in Germany. Now, the French troops were parachuted into the Triangle, Groningen, Cuvorden and Zwolle around 48 hours before the Canadian Vineyard. So the Canadians were still in the Provence of Overijssel and then the operation in started. Now, the aim of the operation was to prevent the destruction of 18 bridges so that the Canadian vineyard could advance quickly, create confusion, and prevent their opponents, uh, the Germans for regrouping and taking defensive positions around a lot of canals uh, to uh, block the Canadian advance. And uh, they will also provide guides and information for the Canadians in the regional resistance movement. And we also uh, know that they dropped so-called Jetburg teams, consisting of a Dutch resistance fighter, an American, a Canadian, a British intelligence officer, and m- uh, mostly somebody that can use uh, the radio to make contact with the headquarters or the, the vanyard of the Canadian troops. And the purpose was to make contact as quickly as possible with the resistance group, to regrouping them, give them weapons to provide them as guides for the Canadian troops. Now how was the operation planned? Now all companies involved in Operation Amherst, as well as others, were organized in, into so-called sticks, so-called groups. And during the operation, each stick had 15 men, 11 corporals and soldiers, and 2 officers and 2 non-commissioned officers. So that was uh, the forming of this stick. And on average, each company had 6 sticks. So a total of 47 sticks were involved, which composed of 2 French special air service regiments, battalions. And in addition to these two French regiments, a Belgian regiment, also special air service, was deployed during Operation Larkswood. So you have two SAS operations in the northern part of, of the Netherlands. So that's really interesting. The sticks, did they all land in the correct drop zones? So that's a good question.
1: I think this is a key question, isn't it? Because when it comes to to air power here when it comes to deploying paratroopers one of the endless problems is making sure they actually fall in the right place they land in those key strategic drop zones because we know how easy it is for planes to go off course due to potential navigation errors due to the fact they can come under heavy fire or just because of the weather so did they manage to get into those drop zones
2: Now, the conditions for the drops were unfavourable because we had low cloud coverage, the area of operations. So instead of jumping from the usual altitude of 200 metres, the paratroopers had to jump from 600 metres.
1: Ah, right. So some of the problems there, of course, is that they have to linger for longer in the air. They can be swept off course by the winds if this is unfavourable weather. And, I mean, they are... Well, flying ducks, sitting ducks in the sky, ready for anyone who can spot them and take them out as they land. That must have caused chaos.
2: Yeah, yeah. and of course, they were dropped at night. And so um, in the night of the 7th till 8th April 1945, uh, the first stick dropped later that night around uh, a quarter before 12. And the last parasitist jumped out around 1am. The thing is, they were dropped blind. That means we had no pathfinders marking the drop zones. So what I already mentioned, the conditions were unfavorable, there were no marked drop zones, low cloud covered the area of operations, and with wind speeds of 25 kilometers per hour, also, and they land, landed hard and were scattered across the drop zones. So it, it were terrible conditions.
1: This puts a whole new meaning to the fog of war, doesn't it? I mean, this is, uh, this is incredibly difficult conditions.
2: Yes, and the thing was also that the jeeps, because of the bad weather, it was not possible to drop the jeeps. So the plan was drafted that the Canadians or the Belgians were bringing the jeeps so they could be mobile, but the jeeps were still, and they were behind German lines, and the jeeps were males behind the Canadian lines. So that was also a huge challenge. 70 of the 47 sticks landed, or a reasonable distance, 5 to 8 kilometers from the designated drop zones and 12 sticks landed at greater distances around 15 kilometers from the drop zones and one stick even arrived 40 kilometers away in a region that had already been liberated so that's also a funny thing now in addition to the troops more than 200 containers of weapons ammunitions and rations were also dropped for the french
1: uh, uh, paratroopers and were they dropped near where the troops were or did they end up 40 kilometers away as well
2: no, they were also scattered all over the place. So, um, yeah, you already can say that the operation started really tough, <laughs> Operation Emma.
1: Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight
0: thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead... You get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: So you see, so you're hungry, you're disorientated, you don't know where the rest of the people are, and it's in the middle of the night. This isn't the best start to a mission.
2: No, 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 especially not. And the French paratroopers were also told by Calvert when the start of the operation. In the country of uh, the uh, province of Drenthe is a good hunting area, so good luck with you're hunting. But yeah, when you're scattered all over the place, it's not, not a lot of hunting. But yeah, we can highlight some of the sticks' actions because some of the sticks never saw action and stayed in most of the forested area of Drenthe, because it's a province with a lot of forests. After contacting the locals, the paratroopers began their work, and their work was to capture uh, bridges and uh, create chaos behind the German lines. Now, While searching for the bridges and other targets, the best plans sometimes went very wrong, and the paratroopers fought with German troops at ten different places. And An example of a combat action is at Gasselte, also in Drenthe, Four sticks attacked successfully the National Kraftfahrer Korps, that was a, a headquarters, which was a transport unit of the German army, often manned with Dutch volunteers. Now here 18 Germans, amongst whom two officers were captured and transmitted to the surrounding woods, and some get wounded. Can you imagine, you don't have a lot of supplies, only supplies for 48 hours, and you're going to capture German soldiers and bring them back to the forest, but then you also need to supply the german prisoners with food and during this action a french peril lost his life and in the evening the germans returned from borger to Gazelte and locked up the whole of the male population inside the church this because of their suspected help to the french troops now the german forces uh, started preparations to shoot all the hostages all the men that are still inside the church Now fortunately this almost drama ended well, 60 civilians were imprisoned in the town of Assen and liberated by the Canadians on April the 13th 1945. Now, where I'm telling you this story, because it's really important to tell the story, because there were a lot of civilians executed till the the end of the war, especially in Drenthe, because they were accused by helping the French during their uh, special air service actions. The French paratroopers were only meant for quick actions, commando actions, and not to occupy a village and then waiting for the Canadians to arrive. Thus most of the French paratroopers were also seen as liberators. So a lot of people came outside when they saw the French paratroopers hanging the Dutch flags outside, and then the paratroopers returned to their base camps, mostly in the forests, and then the Germans came back get some people from the population and execute them for the help of the French paratroopers.
1: So this is immediate reprisals as a result of these French SAS campaigns that are meant to come in and drop back out, but the civilians are mistakenly thinking that this is it, this is finally the liberation, but they're just that that moment too early.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, there's also an example in Spear. Uh, Near Hogeveen, where uh, the the French paratroopers were involved in heavy fighting, they were forced to retreat back uh, to Cuvorden, and what happened is that 21 civilians were accused by helping the French resistance of the French paratroopers, and they were killed or executed near Spier. And there was a terrible toll for this whole operation. We have also in the province of Drenthe an interesting historical thing, but also especially the
1: Camp Westerbork, um, and it's well-known. I've heard of Camp Westerbork. Okay, so I didn't know this was involved in this mission, but the one thing I know about that camp is, was it not a staging post to take Jews to concentration camps?
2: Yes, Camp Westerbork, and uh, that was located in the province of Drenthe, and one stick of the French Special Air Service paratroopers fought a fierce engagement at the village of Westerbork. The camp is a little bit outside near Haul and in the village of Westerborg was a German headquarters established. But then during the, the quick action of the special air service, they managed to take out a German general. He was seriously wounded. And um, SS guards in Westerborg were alarmed by the fighting in the village of Westerborg and were fleeing out of the camp. Now, in a camp near Westerborg, the SS operated a transit camp. It was a transit camp used to hold Dutch Jews before they were deported to death camps in Poland. And well-known, of course, Anna Frank and her family were captured in August 1944, were also sent to Camp Westerbork, before they were sent east to be murdered at Auschwitz and uh, bergen belsen Now, on April 12, 1945, patrols of the 8th Reckie Regiment, were, uh, the reconnaissance regiment of the 2nd Canadian Infantry Divisions and elements of the South Squadron Regiments reached the camp and ensuring the safety of around 850 Jewish prisoners who were still over there, and we went escaped the deportations. But the cruel thing of this is that after the liberation of this camp, the Jews that remained had to stay in the camp for months longer, and this was all a security measure in the first place, because the entire Netherlands was still not liberated, and they was still fighting further up north, and the Canadian and Dutch authorities first wanted to investigate why these Jewish prisoners hadn't been deported
1: to uh, their camps were they able to get some medical support through to them, some food at least?
2: Yes. When the reconnaissance units arrived at Camp Westerbork, they were overwhelmed by the Jews that were still there, in 50. But it was a reconnaissance unit, and they need to go further, um, because they were the vineyard of the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division all the way up to the city of Groningen. But the Jews that were still there, they were so full of joy about the liberation of the camp. They... Climbing on the scout cars and screaming and yelling. So one of the sergeants, he had a terrible stomach feeling about this, but he needs to, he need to fire with a stengen, a couple of bursts and through the air because they need to get. The Jewish people from the scout cast to go further. After that, the South Squadron regiment arrived in the camp to give medical aid and water and so on. It would take until July 1945 before the last prisoners were allowed to leave Camp Westerborg. And after that, it was camp was used as a camp for collaborators, also called the NSB, National Socialistische Partij in the Netherlands. They were round up um, after the liberation and imprisoned in in westerbork So that was the province of Drenthe was liberated in one week by the Canadians. It was also mainly because of the, the French operations. And then the liberation of the city of Groningen started in April 1945.
1: So what happens here then is that the French SAS and their numerous sticks that were deployed were able to really help the Canadians and pave a pathway through almost literally to help with a a rapid advance in those final weeks of the war and hopefully reducing the number of casualties that the Canadians would have otherwise had to sustain to bring the war to an end in May.
2: Yes, after the war, Queen Juliana of the Netherlands awarded them also the Bronze Lion to the two regiments that were involved. And um, there was also for the extreme bravery and leadership in the battle, of course, because it was behind German lines, fighting against a lot of German isolated groups. And uh, they helped the Canadians especially to get over the bridges and go to the city of of Groningen. But the losses on the French side, a total 34 men were killed. And uh, in a total the Germans talking about 300 Germans were killed during the operations by the French SAS in Drenthe.
1: And your passion for this so clearly comes across Joel, and one thing that you're able to to really provide some insight into is just how chaotic, how much of a Armageddon base delving into the pits of hell those final days of the war really were. You mentioned just offhand that the Nazi troops were holding civilians captive inside a church, almost like a last stand in order to negotiate their surrender and um, I suppose try and get away with the best deal they could. Is that something that was common as Allied troops moved through these pockets of resistance and desperately tried to free civilians? Were so many civilians taken captive and held hostage?
2: Yes, especially at the end of the war. We also know that it's not only in the province of Drenthe, but also in, for, of course, Overijssel, Gelderland. We know that at the, the end of the war, a lot of executions were made. Uh, prisoners were get out of the prisons and were shot by the Siegerheidsdienst or SS troops, but also those collaborators who were killing civilians. There were terrible massacres at the end of, of the war. And it was not really big groups, around 16, 20... Uh, But a lot in total were killed in the last days of the war. And especially because you can imagine the rest of the Netherlands was already liberated. So all the collaborators, Sigarheidsdienst soldiers, SS troops were all fleeing to the northern part of the Netherlands. So after Market Garden, that area over IJssel, but also the western part of the Netherlands was still occupied by the German forces and also the Sigarheidsdienst. Who were still busy with their rounding up Jews, rounding up resistance fighters. So, especially the last months of the war were terrible, terrible for for the provinces and especially of the western part of the Netherlands because of the terrible hunger winter.
1: Well, Joel, thank you so much for taking us through this history. And I suppose in some ways almost rectifying a little bit of a historical wrong because one of the things that I found remarkable about the information that you've told us is that you know we have a, and perhaps it's it's not just a British thing, but there is this common myth of the French being uh, cheese-eating surrender monkeys. And we've done a previous episode on that where we tried to dispel this myth further. But what you're telling us here is just how hard-fought and hard-won those French victories were to lay that ground for the Allies. Have the French been commemorated? Have they been a lasting memorial left in Holland as a result of their actions?
2: Yes, there is a, the big memorial for the French uh, Special Air Service operations is based in Assen. The weekend about Operation Amherst, the 7th of eight April 1945, so there will be commemorations, there will be some drops to commemorate the, uh, the operations and the drops by the French paratroopers. But also we have one veteran still alive from this operation, French paratrooper, who are going to visit the commemoration. so that's really special. So I think, yeah, there are people interested in uh, in Operation Amherst and there's still more people that wants to know more about this operation. We're also doing battlefield tours around that area and we see that people are also reading a lot about it. So you see that there is more attention for also the unknown chapter of the, I say, the sweetest of springs, we call it, the last April days of the liberation of the
1: Netherlands. Well, I know there's so many of our listeners that will want to learn more about this and also know where they can go and book a tour with you, Joel. So tell us, where can we get more information? Where can we follow you on social media?
2: My own uh, Facebook page is the Joel Stoppels Battlefield Tours and um, we have a whole team behind it. We're posting live videos where we're going to visit on of memorials. We're going to visit with guides, also special places to explain the battle will happen over there, but also uh, a lot of pictures. In chronicle order of the liberation of Europe. And you can visit the website, battlefield Tours tours.nu. So, uh, put nu, as you say in Dutch. Uh, so everybody's free to book a tour. Uh, and not only Amherst, but we're also operating in Nijmegen area, of course, and the Scheldt Estuary, Operation Vertible.
1: Well, Joel, that's perfect. Thank you so much for your time. We'll pop a link to that website in the show notes. And we're going to get you back on the Warfare Podcast because there's so much more of this history we need to go into, not least the liberation of Groeningen itself and the rebuilding of Dutch society after the war. Thank you, Joel.
2: Thank you uh, for having me.
1: Thanks so much for listening, and if you want more, you can now subscribe to our brilliant Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Get cutting-edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week, every week, for free. Enjoy. Normally, being a
0: little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.